Welcome to this episode of Anesthesia On Air, the podcast from the Royal College of Anaesthetists. My name is Sarah Muldoon and I'm a consultant neuroanaesthetist at King's College Hospital in London and an RCOA council member representing anaesthetists in training. Today I'm joined by Dr Mary Doherty. Mary is a consultant anaesthetist at Our Ladies Hospital in Navan in Ireland. Since receiving a late diagnosis of autism in 2013, she has become active in autism advocacy and research internationally. She has just been appointed Honorary Clinical Research Fellow at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. And her current research includes projects exploring the experiences of autistic doctors and medical students, along with researching and implementing improvements to autism education for GPs. She is founder of peer support and advocacy groups, Autistic Doctors International and Autistic Med Students. Welcome to Anesthesia On Air, Mary. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Now, Mary, you've got an extraordinary personal background and lots of clinical and life experience that make you an expert on this subject. I wanted if I could begin by asking you, what do you think makes an autistic person an asset to anesthesia? I think there's two ways to look at that. One is the value of recognising diversity more widely. And then secondly, on an individual level, the differences in how autistic brains work. One of the things I really enjoyed hearing you speak about in Manchester was the fallacy that people with autism aren't empathetic, but actually you were one of the favoured colleagues for having difficult conversations and actually you've really skilled at patient interactions and explaining things in the sorts of details that um, patients want to hear from their doctors. Um, and I also laughed when you talked about how there were so many um, autistic pleasing bits of anaesthesia like labelling your drugs in the morning and things like that. Oh yeah, I mean there's so many um, mini routines throughout the day in anaesthesia. It's just brilliant. We always do things exactly the same way and the pleasure that that gives us as autistic people is just, it's something that I don't think non-autistic people actually recognise. Um, but we tend to see the world quite differently to non-autistic people and we have particular skills around pattern seeking and seeing seeing not not pattern seeking but seeing patterns in things in the way that um non-autistic people tend not to we do tend to see details that others tend to filter out and sometimes we can get stuck on those details and not see the, the the bigger picture unless we specifically learn to look for that um but that is huge benefits in terms of innovation and invention there's a fabulous book uh, written recently by psychologist simon baron cohen called the pattern seekers and it's all about the way autistic people's brains work and how that drives human innovation and and, and inventions at one time I can think of, it was back in the late 1990s, when I was a very junior trainee and human factors in anesthesia was the hot topic at the time. So I was attending a seminar and there was another more senior trainee there from my own department who I recognised, but we didn't really know each other. Now, looking back, we were very, both very much outsiders in the department, but neither of us knew, knew why at the time. So a psychologist was leading a session on visual perception and human errors. And there, was, there were various tasks designed to show how people see um, what they expect to see rather than what's actually in front of them. And so various challenges were presented and the instruction was to um, make what was shown on screen make sense and then put your hand up when you could see the solution. So I was down the back and I had a really good view of the room and my colleague was up the front. With each task, I put my hand up more or less instantly and so did he. 
And then there was quite a gap before anyone else did. So it seemed like quite a long time with everyone talking amongst themselves and some people even arguing about how to do these tasks. But it was like it was like so blindingly obvious instantly to both my colleague and myself. And what's really interesting is that it was years later before either of us realized that we were both autistic. And he's now our anesthesia lead and he's responsible for um, our anesthesia group logo. But wasn't it cool that even back then, before either of us had a clue that we were autistic, there was something very specific about the way we approached those tasks that was different to everyone else in the room. Lots of um, advances in medicine, in science are all driven by, uh, by, by autistic people. Communication skills um, are very different for autistic people and quite often need quite, quite often autistic people who learn to excel in communication have really taken this on as a special interest um, and have studied it. And while it tends to remain cognitive, it doesn't really become intuitive. I, I really liked the way you described that, because for me, I mostly do adult anaesthetics. When I have to do a kid, I'm, that's exactly the word I would describe it. It's so, such a cognitive process. Like I can't just reach for a drug or a syringe or a bit of equipment. There's this added mental effort of being like, they're how old, they're what way, how do I have to adjust it? That really resonated with me. Absolutely. And that is such a perfect example of what our day to day lives are like, no matter what it is. So communication generally remains cognitive um, in, in all sorts of circumstances. Um, and that's exactly what it's like having to think about it all the time. Now, it can become um, particularly for those of us who become very good at communication skills. Um, it's often been a special interest or it's often been something that we have specifically studied. And while it does remain cognitive, usually it doesn't become intuitive and um, it can be very, very effective. And we're we're often very good with patients. Um, and again, because we can be quite um, straight to the point, quite blunt, we'll often give information to patients in a way that is generally well received by patients. We don't tend to beat around the bush. We do tend to be, be, be very direct. Um, and I think that's probably easier for us than it is for our non-autistic colleagues. Yeah, I certainly read with great interest the article you published in our rival organisation, the Association's Anesthesia News, um, and the way you described the communication differences between neurodiverse and neurotypical anaesthetists really stuck with me, because it sounded like that actually as neurotypical anaesthetists we'd be doing ourselves, our colleagues and our patients a lot of favours if we cut out a lot of the ambiguity and hints and hidden curriculum type stuff that we embed in our communication style. I would totally agree. Absolutely. And that's it, it, right across the board. If you make things OK for autistic people, whether that's autistic colleagues, autistic patients, autistic kids, it generally benefits everybody. Because once things are clear, um, it's just so much easier for everyone. Thank you. Well, if I could expand on that, then what are some of the challenges that are faced by autistic anaesthetists and how can we as your colleagues help you to mitigate that? I think the most important thing is understanding and recognition um, because there are certain aspects of life as an anaesthetist that are genuinely so different to the experience as a non-autistic uh, colleague, particularly around sensory difficulties, sensory issues, um, things like lights, noise, um, fabrics, temperature. They're sort of the way we experience the world is genuinely different. and um, the impact of sensory issues 
even in terms of reducing the ability to communicate effectively um, is something that is generally not recognized um, outside of the uh, sort of outside of autistic circles, but it really does help. And the other thing that's very difficult is constant change. So so our trainees, for example, would often say that um, it's particularly difficult with repeated and recurrent and, and, and very rapid changes um, of departments, which which happen throughout training. But even in a particular department, changing between different theatres, working with different colleagues, you know, every day is a new, new, you know, a new experience in terms of the relationships. It can be quite difficult sometimes with different colleagues to figure out their communication style and to figure out the unspoken messages that just that hidden curriculum. And it, it, it's really difficult. And if people have different communication styles and you're trying to adapt to that, trying to understand that and adapt to it every day, and it's something new every day, it's very, very difficult. On the subject of the experience of trainees versus those in more permanent posts like consultants or SAS anaesthetists, um, what do you think about the experience of examinations? Um, exams can be very difficult, particularly um, clinical exams and OSCEs, because the thing is, Non-autistic colleagues tend to filter out the incongruous information that comes along with a simulated environment. You're an actor acting acting as a patient. Um, and none of the realistic cues that we have in, in, in a genuine clinical environment um, exist. So autistic colleagues can be very disconcerted, very distracted by that. Um, and again, it's trying to figure out which aspects of the particular scenario are meant we're meant to focus on and um, it just takes so much additional processing time and then on top of that there's the additional stress of a pressured environment and if a colleague who doesn't understand an autistic communication style gives directions that are ambiguous it, it can be really really difficult often in simulations or in exams directions or instructions are given by nonverbal communication such as tone of voice or repeated questioning which suggests that you might want to rethink your answer that doesn't necessarily translate to an autistic candidate um, who will take things very literally or who may take things very literally. How could trainers such as here in the UK college tutors training program directors deliver the anaesthetic training program to ensure an equitable experience for both neurodiverse and neurotypical trainees? I think recognising the impact of anxiety and and um, sensory overload is really crucial, whether that's in a training environment or indeed during exams, um, because a frazzled brain can't learn. And there's just so much of the day to day practice of anaesthesia, particularly for trainees, that is anxiety inducing unless there is that understanding of, of, how, of how a neurodivergent brain works. The difficulty then is that if, for example, feedback is delivered in a way that is not in um, a style that's easily accessible by an, by an autistic person, then the benefit of that feedback is lost. And quite often then progress is really delayed because trainees aren't getting the appropriate feedback. And, you know, for example, um, an example I can think of uh, recently was a trainee doing something that was maybe a little inappropriate or, you know, sh showed inexperience. Um, and the trainer saying, why did you do that? Whereas the trainee then explained why I did that. But actually, that wasn't the right answer at all. The hidden message was, what were you thinking? Don't ever do that again. 
<laughs> but without the trainer recognizing that the trainee was autistic and therefore taking things literally, um, they weren't going to understand that th this person wasn't being argumentative, which was how it was viewed. What then happens is incidences like that are repeated and a perception is formed. And then the difficulty is that everything that subsequently happens is viewed through that lens of the problem trainee. When in actual fact, if you're to turn it around and view things through an autistic lens or a neuro neurodivergent lens, um, it's all perfectly acceptable and perfectly understandable in a way that can then help the trainee to, to, to get the maximum benefit from training. And also for trainees or for trainers as well. It's, you know, it's really satisfying to be able to understand why a trainee is struggling or why a trainee is perhaps misunderstanding um, directions or I mean, I'm thinking of one trainee that I know um, who struggled to figure out with different with different trainers would struggle to figure out which particular technique a particular trainer might like. So he might go off and um, see a patient and come back and um, present the case and then say, so what, what, what do you want me to do? And the thing is, what he should have done was come back and said, this is the case, this is what I propose to do, do you agree? But because he was asking what he should do rather than making, you know, making a plan, people had the impression that he wasn't as competent as he actually was. What he was trying to do was um, anticipate what his, what his trainer would prefer. Yeah, I I think that's one of the most stressful things for novice anaesthetists when they're like, oh my goodness, there's not more than there's more than one way to do this. That it seems to mortally offend today's consultant anaesthetist if I try to do what yesterday's did. So I can only imagine how much higher the stakes must be if you're an autistic person also trying to navigate these pitfalls. Absolutely, and particularly when the instructions are all nonverbal. <laughs> <laughs> As, so I appreciate that your diagnosis of autism came later in your life, um, but I, I wonder, did you notice a difference? Did your working life feel easier once you became a permanent member of one department rather than an anaesthetist in training rotating all the time? Oh gosh, yeah, absolutely, no comparison. Um, I look back, I really wish that I had known years ago. Life is definitely much easier um, being based in one permanent location and not having to having to move. Um, it's also it's also great being able to develop long term working relationships with colleagues, um, both anesthesia and, and, and surgical colleagues. That's that that's been great. And just the familiarity of working in the same place, having some degree of routine around my working week. And being able to set up, you know, I set up my work and my, my, being able to set up my office as I as as suits me, for example. Um, I mean, the overhead lights have been broken for months. I have no desire to ever have them change, have them fixed. Um, that suits me fine. Reflecting on your experience, how do you think the Royal College of Anaesthetists could support and promote neurodiversity amongst our anaesthetic workforce? Um, I think awareness and understanding is the most important aspect and um, recognising that 15 to 20 percent of the general population are in some way neurodivergent. Um, it's clearly a big issue for us in anaesthesia and therefore I think every uh, every department needs to become neurodiversity affirmative so that it's so that it's an environment where neurodivergent trainees can can really thrive. And that involves a change of ethos for a lot of um, for, for a lot of our, our departments. Um, I think that appointment of um, neurodiversity champions um, is really is, is a really positive step that's been um, pioneered with the College of Psychiatrists 
and um, the Royal College of General Practitioners, for example, would have autism champions. Um, and it's not necessarily something that we might have considered as an aesthetist, but it, it's very relevant both to ourselves and also to our patients, because the the understanding of the needs of our autistic patients, as well as our autistic colleagues, um, is uh, perhaps something that we need to address. We all think of autism as an issue in paediatric anaesthesia, but autistic children grow up to be autistic adults. And if we're looking at at least one to two percent of the general population um, being autistic, then um, we're encountering autistic patients in our daily day to day practice. We often don't recognize it. And the, the difficulties that autistic people have in the healthcare service, that's an entirely other, other talk altogether. Um, but I think that recognizing the needs of autistic colleagues will help us greatly in the care that we deliver to autistic patients. Absolutely. And talking about recognition, if any of our listeners um, have felt that what we've discussed today is relevant to them or to someone that they work with, um, how can they find out more? Um, I think there's a lot of resources available online. There are a lot of, uh, first of all, check out our website, Autistic Doctors International, um, and our link tree. We've got lots of publications there. Um, lots of members have written about their experiences and there's lots of blogs and stories to read. In terms of wondering if this is relevant for you personally, there are um, various screening tools available online. Uh, the NICE guidelines would recommend the AQ10, which is the Autism Quotient 10. It's the shorter version of the AQ50. Personally, I like um, a different one, a different screening tool, which is the RITFO uh, RADS. So if you look up the RADS14, that's R-A-A-D-S. That is particularly good, I think, for, for autistic doctors, because um, quite often a lot of the issues that are really typical of being autistic um, are not as obvious in adulthood because maybe we've learned strategies to, to hide, you know, to, to, to hide, hide our autistic traits or whatever. The thing about the RADS is it takes account of autistic traits that were much more obvious in childhood, for example, or, you know, as, as younger people. Um, so that's why I like that one. Can I ask an interjecting question? If I felt I was working with a colleague who was experiencing challenges in the workplace that may be because they had an undiagnosed neurodiversity, is there a sensitive way for me to broach that subject and prompt them to consider it? Yeah, very much so. The way that it's broached is incredibly important because the thing about the diagnostic criteria, for example, is that they are just so deficit focused and so pathologizing that a lot of um, a lot of autistic doctors just don't see themselves within that uh, that category. And also autism is just still such a stigmatized condition that it can be really difficult. So I think the important thing is that if you're going to broach this with a colleague, um, that you're coming from a neurodiversity affirmative perspective so that you're not um, reinforcing that stigma. And genuinely, if you think that autism is, you know, an awful condition that, you know, I mean, then maybe you're not the right person to broach that with the relevant person. And um, ideally, if there's somebody autistic or neurodivergent in the department, that's certainly the best way, um, I think, to approach it. But also consider whether or not you should in the first place. Because um, it, it, it's not always necessary. Um, certainly, if somebody is at the point where the their autistic traits are impeding their career, um, then definitely it should be addressed. And I think often people shy away from it. And 
you know, don't want to address it. But if it's if it's got to a point where it is imp impacting somebody's career, then it's really important, I think, that it is addressed and clearly unambiguously not hinted about, because, again, that's the difficulty. Um, the other thing that's really important to avoid is um, pointing fingers and assuming that, you know, all unpopular or trainees are somehow, you know, autistic. Not all trainees in difficulty are autistic. A lot are, but not all. Not all unpopular members of our departments are autistic. And unfortunately, what tends to happen is that autism is often used as a, it's often used as a slur. It's often used as a throwaway comment about colleagues who are not seen as popular or might, you know, eccentric or whatever. But not all these colleagues are autistic. Um, and it's really important, I think, that we challenge that stigma and that we um, challenge the use of autistic in that context. The one thing that is worth saying is we've had several members in the ADI anesthesia group who've had their training and indeed their careers completely transformed. People who were on the point of being redirected away from anesthesia, um, what has made the difference has been one, one supportive mentor, one trainer who understands who understands neurodiversity, uh, understands autism, and that's made such a massive difference. So we have several people, you know, in consultant posts at this point who would have been um, redirected earlier had that not been recognised. Just one thing about diversity, actually, in general, it's the idea that we were having these same conversations about homosexuality and gender inclusion um, only a few short decades ago. And that that's really the journey that we need to come um, in terms of uh, accepting neurodiversity as well. Absolutely. So really, we should all be generally embracing of each other's different working strategies and communication styles. And as we would if we had any concern about somebody's actual professional performance or their health and well-being, then would sympathetic colleague and should approach them sensitively about it. Does that sound like a reasonable way of summing up what you've said? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anesthesia is the perfect specialty to be in if you're eccentric. <laughs> I think that's a really lovely statement and sentiment to end our conversation on, Mary. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about this today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Anesthesia On Air from the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our programme of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.